Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Dialogue Between the Lines with Susan Wingate and Joshua Graham, where each week Joshua and I get to talk with authors and publishing industry professionals. Joshua and I are your hosts for today's program, and we'd like to take a moment to invite you to connect with us on our new website, www.dialoguebtl.com. That's dialoguebtl.com. BTL is, stands for Between the Lines. Um, stay tuned because in just a few short minutes, we'll have number one New York Times best-selling author Lincoln Child joining us for what is sure to be a thrilling chat. So how are you doing today, Joshua? I'm doing great, Susan. Thanks so much. Uh, lots of stuff going on. Um, I have just been enjoying our show so much because we've been having great authors like today's guest, Lincoln Child. Last week we had Steve Berry. Um, what a privilege it has been for us over the past year or so to uh, speak with such illustrious guests. And um, I know that our listeners have also benefited from listening live or listening to our podcasts. Um, it's been entertaining. It's been informative. And today I think will be nothing less than spectacular. Um, on, the, uh, on my front, what's going on is uh, recently uh, writing as my uh, evil twin uh, pen name Ian Alexander recently re- released a uh, short no- novella called From the Ashes, and um, this is a prequel to Once We Were Kings, which last uh, month hit number one uh, on Amazon for uh, a couple of number one lists uh, for, uh, I guess, uh, fantasy, sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, so this is a prequel to that, and it was just uh, featured free on Amazon uh, yesterday and today only. So if you're interested in a free short novella, uh, look up Ian Alexander's, uh, it's, the title is From the Ashes. And uh, what was neat about that was that uh, it, it now just, I found out this morning that it hit number one on sci-fi fantasy uh, list on Amazon as well. So um, I would Yay. really love it if people would just go ahead and download it. Go to Amazon.com and download From the Ashes by Ian Alexander. Uh, you don't even need to have a Kindle these days. I mean, you can just download a Kindle app for your iPhone or for your smartphone, for your computer. If you use like Safari or Google Chrome web browsers, they have what's called a cloud reader that you can read right inside your browser as well. So it's uh, free apps, free fiction, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. How are things going for you, Susan? Well, you know, I have to agree with you first off about how wonderful it is to be doing this show and how great our guests are, guests like Lincoln Child this week and, and Steve Berry last week. And um, and in the next coming weeks we have also uh, William Davis, who is known as the um, the smoking man on the X-Files. Um, yeah, we're, we're quite guy. blessed. Yeah, <laughs> we're quite blessed by... Um, by our guests, I'm super excited to be speaking with Lincoln Child today. So I'm I'm ex- I'm I'm equally ecstatic, and I think it will be a thrilling chat as you as you so um uh at not adequately I was going to say adequately so better than inadequately yeah yeah 
<laughs> what am I trying to say? But anyway, I was trying to make a tie into the thriller genre there. It really just bombed, didn't it? But anyway, um, as for me, uh, as some of you may know, Drowning, my latest re- 2011 release, um, it's a it's a women's fiction novel, suspenseful women's fiction, uh, won the first place award for the 2011 National um, or Forward National Literature Award, and I'm super excited to tell everybody about that. Um, that in the spring the audiobook will be released. Um, awesome. So that's really I know that's it is awesome. And um, Cindy Lee Samuel is the artist and narrator, and so I'm super excited about that. I love her voice, and she's uh, she's it's very flexible in her vocal quality and um, and just a real talent. So I'm excited about um, hearing that when it's when it's finalized i've been hearing little snippets as it goes and it's extre- extremely fun to um get that part of uh, an audiobook out so but um i'm not quite sure of the exact date but i think the publisher it like i said is talking about may sometime but i'm not quite sure on that date and you can find drowning on all the major online distributors amazon um uh, Barnes and Noble, Smashwords, all of those, and um, and just uh, it's just going very well. I'm I'm happy with um, it, the success it's seeing. So um, lots of fun, lots of fun. Well, Drowning is a, is a fantastic book, and um, I'm glad it's coming out on audio audio book. Is is it going to be distributed through something like Audible or? It is. It's going to be Wonderful. distributed through Audible.com. Um, uh, and and that will all happen as soon as you know the 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 production of the uh, CD is complete, and then it it goes live on Audible, and that will be in May. Awesome! Well, yeah. that's terrific to hear. Thank you. Now today we're really honored to have with us the New York number one bestseller bestselling co-author. Lincoln Child. He's a co-author with, of course, Douglas Preston. They're the uh, authors of Relic, Fever Dream, Gideon's Sword, and the recently released Gideon's Corpse, which, by the way, we'll be giving away in a drawing. So please stay tuned for the details of how you could enter uh, for a chance to win a hardcover copy, a brand new hardcover copy of uh, of Gideon's Corpse, um, which is their latest novel. Um, he's also uh, the author of several standalone novels such as The Third Gate, Deep Storm, Terminal Freeze, and Utopia. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome uh, Lincoln Child to the show. Lincoln, you're on the air. Hi, Lincoln. Oops. Hi, Lincoln. Yes. Hi, Hi, you're on the air. Uh, How are you this morning? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Congratulations, you two, on uh, From the Ashes and Drowning. What fine fellows we all are. Oh, <laughs> thank you. It's a lot of fun, and but we're we're really honored that y- you could make it with us today. Um, uh, and you know, I was looking through the, your website, which, uh, by the way, is uh, PrestonChild.com. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, and it's what a great website. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, very interactive. And looking through um, your bio, it seems that you've walked a really interesting path into your career as a best-selling author. Could you tell us about the various stops along the way that led you to where you are today? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, out of college, I went into publishing in New York because I was fond of uh, words and their habit of turning up in so many books, and it seemed that um, publishing was the the way to go unless you wanted to be an English teacher, which you know I had visions of Nicholas Nickleby, and it really didn't appeal to me um, particularly. Um, 
But uh, I was lucky enough to get a job at St. Martin's Press. And, um, you know, I'd always been a writer as a kid. I wrote two terrible novels, just shameless copies of Heinlein and Tolkien and um, lots of bad short stories. But when I got to publishing, I found my interest in writing sort of dried up because every every single editor has the great American novel under their bed, which they're sort of cynically writing, or so it seemed to me, putting together, you know, all the elements from various novels they'd published or, or um, had seen others publish, and they knew it would be the greatest thing since sliced bread if only they had the chance to finish it. And I just, I didn't want to be part of that rat race. And um, seeing so many good and bad books cross my desk every day, it's like working in a candy store. The last thing you want to go do when you get home is to, you know, eat a big bag of candy. Um, but um, I became good friends with Doug Preston over the course of editing his nonfiction novel, Dinosaurs in the Attic. And um, I left publishing for, of all things, a, a career as a, as a systems analyst and programmer uh, at MetLife. Um, just because the money was better and I thought it would give me sort of a chance to get a get out of the publishing industry and get get um, get an objective view about writing again. Um, and uh, and yeah, I learned a hell of a lot as an editor, it turned out, um, and um, in terms of just what makes a, a, a book good and what makes a book bad. And, and so Doug submitted to me an idea for a, uh, a novel, a, a murder mystery set in the American Museum of Natural History, and um, which I can tell you more about later on. And, and uh and I said to him, Doug, you know, murder mysteries are really hard to do well, um, uh, unless you're Agatha Christie, you know, um, uh, uh, and you don't get a lot of money at them, but what, what about a techno-thriller set in a museum that, you know, that we wrote together? And so as a lark, we began writing Relic, you know. Um, we just, This was in the, the primitive days when the the, 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 the modems were 2,400 baud, soda straws, and, you know, yeah. sent things back That's and right. forth by by fax and by passenger pigeon and things like that. And, uh, and you know, I was working at, at MetLife, and Doug had gone off on the success of Dinosaurs in the Attic to live a existence as a John McPhee-like writer out in Santa Fe. Um, and so we we got Relic halfway finished. Over It took us like a couple of years. And, and um, then we started submitting it around with an a, a agent, and it got declined and declined and declined and declined, and it was really depressing. And our our agent, you know, bless him, kept kept on at it. And then one day, Doug said to me, "You know, Link, um, you know, I really have my own nonfiction career to to uh, you know pursue. And and if it's, if Relic ever sells, well, good luck with it. You know, I'm sure you'll do a good job with it." And like a month later, our our agent called back and said, "Hey, we have a prospective publisher. If you'll significantly rewrite it, you know, and change it along the lines we 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 like." And so uh, I called up Doug and said, "Hey, I just thought I'd let you know that." Relic found a publisher, and I'm going to be going ahead with it. And so the first thing I hear from him is, great partner, when do we start? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, you know, it was a long, it was a long um, gestation process, you know. And then Relic came out, and it was a bestseller in, pa in paperback, and it became a number one movie from Paramount. And so we sort of thought we were set. But then, then the book sales dropped way down after that, and it was a, a long, a long, slow climb from after that. And you know, it's one gets depressed sometimes. But I, I kept on telling Doug about all the authors that just thought, that's plugged away, and they kept on trying to write good, fresh, interesting books and try and sell a few more copies with each one. And we finally achieved critical mass several books later. And um, 
we haven't looked back since. Wow. What you a fantastic know, um, story. It is a fantastic story. Um, I I just have to tell you that I'm so I I love your your photo your author photo that we have up with the cockatoo on your shoulder. Oh yeah. Is that your co- yeah. is that your cockatoo? Yes, that's Chaucer. Yep. Chaucer. Chaucer. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, Chaucer. I love I love birds. I have fourteen. I used to have a macaw. Uh-huh. Um, I have a couple of cockatiels and some doves, and so when I saw that, I went, "Oh, you know, well, you, you have the awe effect." Macaws can be pretty, you know, um, hard to manage. I mean, they're like children almost in a lot of ways, aren't they? Oh, they're just—they need a ton of attention, which is which is fine. But um, yeah. boy, they they definitely are. But cockatoos are a lot alike. I mean, they're they're. Yes. They're, I think. They're needy, aren't they? Needy. They're very needy, and you know they—they're also incredibly fierce. I mean, not not to their owners, yeah. but those those beaks of theirs can break walnuts. You know, I'd hate to be a wow. cat going up against a a cockatoo with those massive beaks of theirs. Yeah, I've seen many friends of mine who have had cats and cockatoo and bigger birds, tropicals like the cockatoo or the macaw or even a, um, the African greys, and the cats just don't even bother them. Yeah, yeah, they know better probably. <laughs> they do. Well, anyway, um, what I wanted to um, ask you about the actual process of um, of a story like Gideon's Corp, um, how you and Doug Preston work together. Um, it, it 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 can't be easy, and it must take a while, a little bit of time. Do you split it up in chapters? How do you do that? Well, a lot, that's what a lot of people assume, I think. You know, they assume that I write Chapter 1 and he writes Chapter 2 and I write mm-hmm. Chapter 3 and so on. But that would be a recipe for disaster because, you know, he, Doug might have this idea for killing off Hamlet in, you know, Chapter 30. Well, I have this, this great idea for a grave scene holding a skull in Chapter 45, you know. And, um, and I think people would get the sense of a kind of a sort of a stop and start, sort of a stuttering, you know, motion if we if we just sort of, Swap back and forth. What we tend to do, um, well, in the, originally what happened was Doug Doug wrote the majority of the chapters because I was like the editor and he was the writer, and that's how it, 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 it those were our, our perceived roles. And mm-hmm. I would write out outlines for like the next ten chapters, and he would write them with, with a great deal of flagellation and, and, and cajoling and begging from me. And um, eventually, <laughs> I'd get them back and uh, I'd rewrite them. But over time, you know. Seeing seeing him take my outlines and and spin them out into full chapters and you know it it, it got my own nascent writing interests you know uh, uh, peaked again and mm-hmm. you know I'd write the odd chapter here and there anyway and um, and I think from him seeing how I edited and changed his 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 writing I think it, it gave him a, a sharper idea of how best to do it you know an, an editor's job is really um, well, it's got many facets, but one 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 thing is, you know, a typical reader will put a book down and say, that was okay, but it wasn't all that great. But an editor's job is to say, well, this book is not good because the protagonist doesn't develop sufficiently in the second act of the book, you know, and the, you know, the uh, the supporting character should be a woman, not a man, and and should should have some kind of personal crisis. You know, they have to be able to put their finger on what's wrong with it, and. Mm-hmm. Um, a good editor can do that and, and improve a book substantially. And so I think Doug was able to see 
how I how I change the, the direction, you know, of, of 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 our of the story. And so over time, what happens now is we each write fifty percent, basically, and and one of us will champion a certain book, and the other one will champion another book. Like I might champion a, the Pendergast book, and Doug will do the Gideon, but um, we'll each write extended sequences in the other book, and we each edit each other's prose. And, you know, so it's really like a chicken and the egg kind of thing now because Doug might point to a certain chapter and say, well, I wrote that. But the mm-hmm. fact is he wrote it based on an outline that I had put together, and he and I then discussed at great length. And after he wrote the chapter, I took a literary Zamboni over it and kind of smoothed it out and cleaned it up. And so we really get all four hands on almost every word. So it's really a, it's a very smooth and detailed process. And you had mentioned... Uh, Susan, that you thought it might be hard to do, but ironically, it's easier in some ways than writing solo because both Doug and I have written solo novels. And when you write a book by yourself, it's just you up in that garret with the the, the blank screen, the word processor sort of blinking at you, and you know every every chapter you write is another fork in the road, and you're never quite sure that you're not going to twenty chapters later find you took the wrong fork. You know, there's nobody there to sort of. I mean, you have your editor, of course, who who is usually happy to talk to you. I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard, and and, and brainstorm and, and and read what we've done. But you know, you just—it's not the same thing as having an, a co-author saying, "You know what? This chapter could be stronger," or you know, "I think that I think you're, you're wimping out here," or mm-hmm. "We're not going in the right direction," or saying, "I'm just having a bad day. I can't think of what to do with this character." So we brainstorm it, and invariably. We come up with an answer, and um, so it's in some ways, in some ways, it's, it's easier. You know, there's when you write a solo book, you have the great pride of holding it up and saying, "This is mine." You know, for better or worse, I wrote this and nobody else. But it's a more difficult, lonely process um, mm-hmm. than writing a joint book. Of course, with the joint books, you got to split the money, but um, <laughs> that's the downside, obviously. Well, that's interesting. Well, that means you I just have, have to make uh, twice as much. <laughs> yeah, Sorry? right. It means you just have to make twice as much uh, money on the book to make it. <laughs> or write twice as many books, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's it. That's or or gain twice as much in the advance. <laughs> yeah, good luck. So um, we, have, we have a question from the chat room, and um, it's about book reviews. And the, the, the uh, chatter asks, um, do you, as a best-selling author, think book reviews are relevant to the younger book buyers, especially the e-book buyers? That's a very good question. Um, you know, traditional publishers think that book reviews and blurbs from other authors are extremely important. You know, they, they plaster them on the on the on the jacket, and you know, often in the case of our mass markets, they have many pages of reviews on the inside front matter of reviewers and. Also from readers, you know, who, who've agreed to, who've written us to praise the book, and who've, who've given the okay to having their um, having their uh, words put into end of our book, and you know, in, in terms of praising it. I think that I think that more and more, I think uh, word of mouth, you know, social um, media, and and uh, you know, internet reviews from peers are going to be are uh, important. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine younger readers probably may place more importance on the number of stars a book gets on Amazon 
than they do on what some professional reviewer who's paid to review books, you know, and, and may not be the ideal audience for this particular story might have to say about it. Which is too bad because, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes people on who give reviews on Amazon give you one star for the wrong reason. You know, Amazon shipped me a copy with missing page 50. You know, well, that's not the fault of the author, you know. Yeah, um, right. Uh, so you know, uh, it's 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 a, it's a funny it's a funny experience for me to read reviews on Amazon because you know, if I was smart, I'd probably just read the five star reviews, but then I can't help reading the one star reviews too, which is a, which you know I've got a pretty thick skin, but sometimes they can be pretty irritating. You know, um, somebody will say, "We'll give the book one star because Pendergast." Oh, Pendergast, he's appearing in every chapter, you know. I'm seeing too much of Pendergast in this book. And somebody else will give the book one star. How come there's not more Pendergast in this book? You know, he, he you know, and so my God, you know, what do you what do you, you know, how fast can I dance? You know, I'm dancing as fast as I can and doing the yeah. best I can. Yeah. But we get we get our own back. We have a page on our website called the Rogues Gallery where we post sour negative reviews and then we poke fun at them. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of. You got to be careful. You don't want to be perceived as shooting fish in a barrel. You know, you know, yeah. um, by choosing, you know, poorly worded or uncouth reviews and poking fun at them. But now and then, there's a, there's a, you know, well, well, well written and, and interesting negative review that we feel that we is is, is a worthy target for our withering scorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like really fun. Um, you know, uh, Lincoln, you mentioned uh, in, in passing, talking about uh, Pendergast. Uh, could you tell us a little bit? Uh, most of your fans probably know all about Special Agent Pendergast, but maybe for some of us who are some of our listeners who are new to uh, your your books with Doug, uh, could you tell us a little bit about Special Agent Pendergast? Yeah, Pendergast is our our leading character. He's our bread and butter hero. Um, he's 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 part uh, the thinking machine, Jacques Futreau's old character. He's part Sherlock Holmes, you know. He's part James Bond. He's he's a really unique and eccentric character. And and you know, when we wrote Relic, we were really doing it on a lark. We were just doing it to have fun, and we didn't care if it was going to get well. We we hoped it was get get published, but we we really didn't think it was probably going to get published. And so we just we just you know went over the top with our characters. And Pendergast is this. FBI agent whose hair is so blonde it's almost white, and he's rich, and he drives around in a Rolls Royce, and he's very dry and very droll, and he only takes on cases that interest him, and he doesn't suffer fools gladly, and he's very eccentric, and he has all these unusual methods of solving crimes. You know, he 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 ha, he goes he undergoes what he calls memory crossings, where he sort of he does an incredible amount of emotional and intellectual research into a, into a problem and then sort of launches into this, he puts himself in the scene mentally to try and reconstruct what had happened in the murder, whether it was a month ago or a hundred years ago. Um, and, you know, he, he he's droll and, and uh, he's, he's attractive, um, but he's also kind of aloof. And, and people seem to love that combination, you know, um, in, and the way he puts down the the stupid cops, or the, or, or cuts through the bureaucratic red tape, you know, with just just a few cutting words, and um, his, his his past life is very mysterious. His his family was well off, but there's a streak of insanity that runs through it. So you know, 
he's 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 a character we really really like and have a lot of fun with. And the funny thing is, he's the one character we can't really say, "Well, Doug figured that character out," or "I figured that character out." You know what happened was, we were writing Relic, and and Doug had these two fat Italian New York cops who were investigating these murders of the museum, and I said to him. Doug, you can't have these two cops. They're exactly like one another. It's like Mutt and Jeff. You know, you have mm-hmm. to have some difference between them. So he very sarcastically said, like what, an albino from New Orleans? And I said, well, you know what? That might work. <laughs> That's a nod to uh, Brown, no? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Great. What an um, interesting uh, start for that. I mean, to think that uh, Pendergast came out of like a offhanded uh, comment, but um, it, I, I have actually been listening to Fever Dream on Audible, uh, and I I know that it's um, narrated by Rene Aubergenois, uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like saying the word, the, the name uh, Azerbaijan. I always say bless you to that. But he does a great job of it, and the way you describe the character, uh, when I made the this, uh, connection between the way uh, Rene actually narrates it. It seems like a really good match. Now um, he's fantastic. He's done a great job, and he's great at Pendergast's voice. You know, he's really a he's, a he's a great talent. I mean, I guess if they ever made a movie, he'd make make, make a a good actor for that. Um, now about Gideon Crew, and I have to take you to task on one thing. I've been reading Gideon's Corpse, and it's because of this book that I have to drink about two cups of coffee this morning because it kept me up to two thirty in the morning reading it. I was just loving it. I, I couldn't put it down. My wife had already fallen asleep like a, two hours before, and I um, I just didn't want to stop reading it. What a fantastic book, and what a great uh, hook for the opening that just makes you not want to put it down from, from the very first word. Um, could you tell us about Gideon Crew? This, is this um, uh, Gideon's Corpse, the second Gideon Crew book? Yes, it is. We decided... Uh, a couple of years ago, we wanted to branch out, not not to abandon Pendergast in any in any means. You know, he's he's still uh, front and center with us. But we wanted to try write writing thrillers that were shorter, that were quicker, more action packed, with a younger, edgier, hipper uh, protagonist. You know, Pendergast is kind of mysterious and complicated and Byzantine and eccentric. And much as we love him, we thought we could sort of Freshen our palate, so to speak, you know, with um, trying our hand with a di- different kind of more action-oriented, quick-moving story. And so we put together the character of Gideon Crew as sort of this young, lovable rake, you know, um, has a has a sort of shady past as an art thief, um, and uh, he um, also has a very uncertain future. He's been diagnosed with a terminal condition. And through the first two books, he's not sure whether this is really the case or, or whether he's just being duped by the um, his boss, who's a very manipulative fellow. Um, and he, he loves fine food. He loves jazz. He has a weakness for alcohol and women, as do, as do his authors. Um, and uh, it's... Uh, He's also a nuclear scientist at Los Alamos, and that, that, that leads into the book you're reading, Gideon's Corpse, because we decided to, to try this, this sort of trope where the last chapter of one Gideon book is also the first chapter of the next Gideon book, mm-hmm. exactly. So it sort of leads in from one book to the next. 
And the first chapter of Gideon's Corpse opens with him being asked by the New York police to talk down this uh, uh, fellow scientist of his at Los Alamos who's gone crazy and is holding a Queens family hostage um, at gunpoint, ranting about government conspiracies. And so he's called in to try and talk his friend down. He doesn't succeed. There's a very unpleasant ending to the hostage situation. And as the cops are picking through the wreckage and sort of putting together the pieces, one of them has a Geiger counter, and when they aim it at the dead body of Gideon's friend, the nuclear scientist, it redlines and goes crazy. And they soon realize that he's joined a jihad, he's gotten religion, and that he may have helped construct a nuclear device which is going to go off somewhere in the States in, you know, the next week or two. And so Gideon is now tasked to helping with his own knowledge of the of the in- industry, where this device might be and how to disable it. Um, but I will tell you that while that's the opening hook, you know, that, that got you going, um, Joshua, it, uh, there was a huge twist halfway through the story. Um, and in fact, um, we were beginning to write a very different book than Gideon's Corpse, and I happened upon this English intelligence operation that took place in World War II where this this, this Englishman washes up on the shore of Italy um, and, you know, in his pockets are battle plans for the invasion of Sicily. Um, and the British frantically try to get the body back from the Nazis and they can't. And the plans in his pockets convince Hitler to totally change his defensive um, fortifications. And the whole thing was a hoax set up by the mm. British. Um, this, this guy was this, just a, bo- a dead body. He got in London. They had to treat it to make it look like it had been floating in the water for weeks, you know. Um, and it totally worked. And the plan was called Operation Mincemeat. And I called up Doug and said, Doug, listen to this. And we dropped everything and, and changed the story to accommodate that. And oh, um, right. I'm not going to say anything more about it except that there is a oh. huge surprise uh, halfway oh. through the story, which 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 we are very pleased with, and um, which you'll fi- you'll you'll come across sooner or later. Well, it really is a compelling uh, beginning, um, and and it just moves. I mean, I love this book; it's fun. Um, and you know the the premise, the the where you throw the you don't mess around either with timing. You just throw him right into the snake pit right away and um i was telling my husband he said what's the book about and i was explaining to him and i i said this is how he starts and he was like oh no <laughs> and so i'm not going to say any more about the beginning because i want people to read the beginning and i have to read um what david baldacci has to say on the back cover and i could read all of them but i wouldn't want to you know I wouldn't want to take up our, our time reading your reviews because you've got thousands of great reviews. Um, but Baldacci says, A rocking tour de force, Preston and Child have crafted an electrifying, riveting thriller on which I could continue to heap praise, but instead I will just offer this. Read the book. Thank <laughs> you, Dave. Yeah. He's That's a great guy, great. And, and so is Steve, who you had on last week. He's another great yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, and and we had asked 
um, Steve last week. Of course, he he declined to answer the question. It was a question about other, you know, if he had any funny stories about because you know you you are given to going to the ITW, the International Thriller Writers Association, and and you're members of it. And so we asked him if he had any interesting stories about other thriller authors, and he said, "Oh, I'm sure I have a lot, but yeah. I don't think they, I want to talk." They probably have funny stories about him, too, so he may not want to uh, open a can of worms. Um, what you mentioned earlier about, about you know, waking up tired because of reading our books, you know, we love hearing stories like that. You know, we, 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 we delight, are delighted when we get emails that say, like, damn you, you know, I was up until 4 in the morning because I had to read just one more chapter. And we, we try and write very visually, you know, we're not trying to, right to make our books into movies or anything, but we we, we we imagine, you know, short, very visual um scenes in the stories we write and we also try and write um stories we would like to read ourselves. You know, we're not sort of cynically writing stories that we think are gonna sell because readers aren't stupid. They know if you're writing to please yourself or if you're writing to try and earn a buck. And, you know, if we didn't enjoy the stories we were writing, you know, we'd be in a different business. And so I think we we sort of I think we unconsciously love to end chapters on on cliffhangers and, and have twists that people don't see coming, and and so when when someone is up to all hours reading our books because they just had to read that one extra chapter, well we then we're happy because we know we've done our job right. Well, you're definitely successful in that. And the pacing is very much like um, if you look at a movie script, uh, it doesn't waste any time. It gets right to the point, and it pushes you to the next one. So it's definitely um, effective at doing just that. And that's one of the things we've learned over the course of many, many novels and also writing screenplays is trying to make sure that, that every chapter does double duty. It's always moving forward. You're not, you're, not, you're not rushing. You don't want the reader to get the sense you're trying to rush to get the thing done, but you're, you're moving the story ahead on several levels. And you know you 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 sort of learn to, to very concisely explain the situation and and to and to, to sketch out in as colorful and as brief a fashion the the surroundings and and the the interpersonal relationships and um, just to keep the story moving at a at a pace that is is acceptable and and, and enjoyable to the reader. That's great. Yeah. Um, be- before we go any further, I just wanted to uh, quickly make uh, a short announcement to our listeners. Please stay tuned because after this interview, we're going to tell you how you can enter for a chance to win a free hardcover copy of this book that w- uh, we've been talking about, Gideon's Corpse. Uh, Susan and I have been have been reading it, and I tell you, this is a, a real page turner. It's one of their recent, uh, most recent novels, and um, really fantastic writing. Uh, so, again, stay tuned until after the interview, and we will let you know how you can enter to win. Um, so, uh, let's see. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, since we're talking about movies uh, and how things are cinematic, I, Relic was the, your kind of your breakthrough uh, book and it was made into a motion picture. What was that experience like? And are there any other books in the works, possibly for motion pictures, that you can speak of? Well, that was a really interesting um, process. You know, I didn't, I didn't get uh, involved at any detailed level, but the original producers were, were, um, you know, very, very forthcoming and asking questions with us and 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 sending us scripts and. Uh, um, you know, it was just—it was just amazing to see the thing 
show up on the on the big screen and uh and um people often ask us well what do you think of the movie did you like it or not and uh i tell them that um the day before we began our tour for the for the movie our agent our hollywood agent called up and said have you read the the movie contract and i said well no of course not it's like a phone book you know he said, we well, better read clause 528 so i I read Clause 528, and it said that if you, if I said anything negative at all about the movie, that I'd not only be responsible for the cost of the entire movie and its promotional budget, but I'd be basically me and my and my my, my tribe for forever forward being indentured, you know, and uh, and held liable. So I loved the movie; it was a fantastic movie. <laughs> But, but all, all joking aside, it was a really interesting process seeing it go from you know book to screen. The only thing that I'm sorry is that Pendergast didn't make it into the, into the movie. He made it to the script, but he didn't make it to the final shooting script. And I, I don't know if it was because he was just too complicated a character to get into a two-hour film, where they weren't sure about how to cast him. But but um, he didn't make it into the movie. Well, and so the and, question and, I get the question I get asked constantly is who would make a great Pendergast you know as an actor and and it's funny over the years as as one candidate gets gets old and grizzled you know and somebody else comes in the the, the list keeps on changing Well in my humble opinion <laughs> I think if you dyed his hair white, you know, or whatever, platinum, you know, this or titanium. That's the new real white color now. Um, George Clooney. He would be a good choice. The only thing about him that I would say uh, is he's a little, he's not quite as, he's, he's, he's muscular, you know. He's not sort of thin and, and cat-like and lithe. Uh, he's more, more stolid a presence, I think. Um, I think the person who played George Smiley in um, the new Tinker Tailor movie might be a good choice. Um, mm-hmm. Although I can't remember his name. Um, my when I originally wrote the uh, the book Relic, I had in mind Christopher Walken. Um, oh yeah. Who was then much younger because he has that kind of really unusual look. You know, Chris Walken or Willem Dafoe or someone like that. You know, who has an incredible screen presence, and it's just a little bit—they seem a little bit just out, out, out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just sort of—they're—they're yeah. um, they're a little bit odd um, on, on on screen, and and I think either one of them has the sort of magnetism they could could have at the time. Um, I think they're a bit too old now for the role, but um, at the time, they have done a great job. Yeah. In fact, uh, Willem Dafoe played in a movie called Boondock Saints, this kind of, you know, really obscure film. He played an FBI agent that in some ways was very much like a Pendergast character. This was this was this came out much later than the relic did, but uh I was I was tickled to see it. Mhm. Yeah. Interesting that um we talked about George Clooney um because I I thought I read somewhere uh in a bio that uh George Clooney is going to be starring in The Monster of Florence. It, it's true. Um, I, I, he is, uh, I guess, in, in pre-production on The Monster of Florence, and he's planning to play the role of Doug Preston 
you know, which is kind of an amusing thing because Doug is such is such an ugly fellow, you know, and, and you know that that club foot of his is such a detriment to his, you know, uh, his getting around, and and to have someone as handsome as George Clooney play him is going to be quite a quite a shock to the system. <laughs> So he'll probably have a chance to take a pot shot at you too. So okay, don't sure. worry about that. Tell him what I said, just to get him in the right mood. We will. Oh, we'll send right. him the podcast. Yeah, do that. That's right. Yeah. Well, Lincoln, it's been such a pleasure uh, chatting with you, and thank you so much for being on our show today. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, I would like to remind everybody to please pick up a copy of Gideon's Corpse. Uh, it's a fantastic book. But again, thanks so much for joining us, and we hope that uh, everything goes well and with with uh, your future endeavors. In closing, I'd like to invite our readers to send us emails if they have any questions. We answer all emails we get. To check out our Facebook page, which is Preston Ann Child, and also to sign up on our website for our newsletter, which which is not full of advertising for our books, but is instead full of funny and interesting and unusual contests and, and information and about Pendergast available nowhere else. Um, so we invite you to uh, reach out to us uh, over the web. Great. That's right. That's great. And and please do that. And we'll repeat your website again one more time before we sign off on the show. So, again, thank you so much, Lincoln Child, for joining us. And uh, we hope you have a great day. Susan, Joshua, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care now. Wow. Wonderful interview. Yeah. So I want to tell, let you all know that um, remind you that you can read about Lincoln Child, his co-author Douglas Preston, and the latest news. Sign up for the newsletter at PrestonChild.com. Uh, again, their latest book, Gideon's Corpse, is available now in hardcover and ebook. Don't forget to sign up now. Here comes the information that you've all been waiting for. Sign up to win a free hardcover copy of Gideon's Corpse. And here's how you do it. Go to our website, which is dialoguebtl.com. Um, that's dialoguebtl, which stands for between the lines, .com. And click on the contact button. When you click on that, you just enter your information. Um, and in about a couple of weeks, we will be announcing the winner on our website. So check back on our website every now and then. Uh, you'll definitely be notified through either your contact information if you are the winner. Um, if you want to stay on top of uh, news for dialogue between the line, click on subscribe by, to our RSS feed by clicking on the RSI, RSS icon next to the coffee mug on our, uh, the top of our website. Again, if you want to win a copy, of the hardcover edition of Gideon's Corpse, go to our website, dialoguebtl.com, and click on the contact button. Enter your contact information. And in a couple of weeks, we will announce the lucky winner of Preston and Child's Gideon's Corpse. Um, I'd like to remind you all again that a podcast of this fantastic broadcast, which is really entertaining, uh, will be available right here at blogtalkradio.com forward slash dialogue as soon as we're done. Be sure to tune in next week when our guest will be Sharon Kramer, the award-winning children's book author of I'm Just Like You. So for Dialogue Between the Lines, this is uh, Joshua Graham with my lovely co-host Susan Wingate, and we'd like to thank you for joining us. Please tell your friends about our show and tune in every Thursday. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.